Space Invader will touch a pen to the paper Futuristic with the computer My rubric is the MacBook And in the rap books But got a rap and been booked My shit is wild I'm stylish with the hooks So cook the dope And shoot it intravenous One of the meanest Killing ops Won't give them props To the ones who fell Chill in a cellar But never dwell in a cell They'll never catch me No never Don't never let them excel And I rebel against the cops and leeches From the ones who killed your son To the one that's asking me for features I'm in the bleachers Talking a lot of shit Hello, if you are listening, then you are here on purpose. This is a show about fighting the system and staying rebellious while being incarcerated. The show takes the form of a recorded phone call between myself and my twin brother, locked up in the detention center at Alexandria, Virginia, just outside D.C. My name is Nathan. And I'm Jeremy. And we are... Twin, twin Trouble! Trouble! And this is our second episode. This week we also have a special guest, uh... Grace, how you doing, Grace? Hey, I'm doing good. How's everybody? How you doing? We're cool, we're cool. And for those who don't know, Grace has the uh, Jeremy Hammond Support Committee. They run my website and Twitter, uh, along with you, Jason, and has been with me since before the very start, before the very start. That's true. We've known each other many years. And so many good years. <laughs> so many years. Thank for being on the show. Do you want to say anything else about yourself, Grace? I am... I do prison sport. I'm an anarchist. I'm anti-fascist. I am all the good things. Oh, all the good things. Uh, that pretty much covers it. Very good. Very cool. Hey, uh, so Jay, we got a busy episode, don't we? That's right. 2020. Well, if you've if you've been paying attention at all, you know it's already been a shit year. Australia's all on fire. Trump almost starts a war. These are just the big time stuff, you know. He insults everyone with the bullshit ass peace plan for Palestine. That was that was drafted without input from the Palestinians, I might add. Yeah. You got no, that guy who was uh, indicted the very next day, too. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely true that there's eerie similarities between Trump and Netanyahu, for sure. All facing elections in a few months, you know. On this podcast episode of On the Noise, we'll be talking about a number of different things, including what's going on in Mississippi right now. Um, we're also doing a recap of all the New Year's Eve noise demonstrations, and we also be going in brief what we touched upon last episode about the weed legalization in Illinois and the struggles that people continue to face under federal prohibition. And we also going to talk about what's going on in Geo Prison Group. We'll be going over uh, some of the investigations into uh, that the USA Today uh, has published on the Geo and G4S Corporation, a uh, massive security corporation and private prison. Been some revelations in the past couple of months that we're going to be briefly discussing. And then, of course, the main bulk of the episode is going to be talking in detail about the whole grand jury experience that I'm going through. As you know, I've been in contempt probably about four or five months now at this point. Last episode, we briefly talked about, you know, the being in transit and stuff like that. But uh, this episode, we're going to uh, blow the case open and really break the silence, break the secrecy of the whole process and talking in detail about the type of questions they're asking, what the whole purpose of this whole thing is, and uh, all of that. So it's going to be a big one this time. That's right. Before we get to all that, I want to talk a little bit about this raggedy-ass jail. Man, what a dump this jail. Yeah, Alexandria Detention Center. So, like we discussed last week, you know, it's a county jail, little city lockup. It's state and federal, you know, prisoners here. We talked a little bit last week about, you know, in general, the conditions in the jail, like such as terrible food, constant lockdowns, 
loss of privacy, you know, the basic dehumanization factors here. But I want to talk a little bit about a few of the things that have happened here just in the past month, right? It's quite a list, it's quite a list, quite a list. Uh, right. And, you know, they kind of want people to be sound about the conditions, what's going on in, in a country's prison system. But I'm not going to keep quiet about it. And, yeah, you know, while they might try to give you the spin job, you know, file a grievance, you know, write your congressman. I'm going to go about it a little bit different way. I'm going to educate, you know, the people about what's really going on just outside our nation's capital. So to get it started, um, about a month ago, they started this new pricing system on the phone calls, right? So in right. local calls, they used to call $2.10 for a half-hour call. Well, they just basically just tripled it to $6.00 for a half-hour call, decided nowhere, no explanation, no nothing. So, and, you know, most of the people at this jail, they're from Alexandria. You know, they used to call your families. It costs $2.10 for a half-hour call, so not 6 bucks. So that's happening. That's thanks to the Securus company, uh, one of the largest private prison profiteers, Securus. That's um, bogus. Yeah, uh, this actually comes, you know, during the Obama years, the FCC had recommended that uh, uh, pricing – uh, for local and long distance calls would be reduced, uh, long distance calls reduced to 11 cents a minute uh, and so forth, right? But the phone companies, including Securus and Global Telelink, actually sued in DC court, got an injunction, and basically put off the decision. And then what ended up happening was Trump election, and he, he put a new uh, FCC chairperson who, I can't remember his name. Ajit Pai, I believe his name was? Yeah, yeah, that was him. That was him. I mean, he did a lot of other stuff too, like the ending net neutrality and all that. Oh, yeah, that guy? <laughs> yeah, God, that guy. The same guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was the one who uh, put a stop to the reducing the prison call rates as well. That's right. Oh, man. Not to mention Global Telling and Securus, of course. He tried selling, uh, man, he did that embarrassing-ass commercial, if anyone remembers, about how not so bad ending net neutrality was. He, like, right. beats popcorn to Game of Thrones and some stupid shit. Yeah, yeah, I read about that. <laughs> oh. So that happened here at Alexandria. They basically tripled the calls for local calls, right? So, man, this is dumb. Check it out. So, like, half the lights in this unit, right, like, uh, are flickering on, on and off all night long, right? So we got we got a light that we can turn on and off and make it bright, but they never really turn completely off. They just stay kind of, like, damn right because they do security checks at night, walk around, make sure, you know, whatever. But uh, those lights just basically flicker on and off, like, endlessly, like, every second or so, right? It's uh, oh my God. ridiculous. Yeah, it's like... Like sensory deprivation or like like a form of torture. More like sensory overload. Yeah, that's like a form of torture. So hard to sleep. Yeah, it's been like that for at least a month. And then it starts spreading to other cells. Like it used to be just like a quarter of the unit, and then it's like almost half now. So that happened, right? So then, wow. you know, the usual stuff about county jails, you know, we got the steel toilet sink combo, right? The, they got the, the push button where you got to push the button and the water comes out. Like it makes like a, a loud squealing sound like like, and it definitely comes out like a little bit at first, but if you, like, hold it for, like, a couple seconds, it maybe shoots past the sink basin and just, like, onto the floor, but then it, like, goes back to small dribbles and stuff like that, right? And, uh, you know, it's so loud, like, the squealing is so loud that basically, like, you know, when it's quiet at night where everybody's in the lockdown cells, like, you could hear every single time someone's using the faucet, like, way across the unit, dude, like, it's ridiculous. So, I mean, little stupid stuff like the the faucets, right? But um, another thing is uh, recreation. Right, so you know there's a city jail, so you know we don't. There's no windows. There's like a little roof area that we're supposed to be able to go several times a week and get recreation, right? Because otherwise we don't really have too much move, room to move around in the day room. But basically they have like an intercom thing that's busted, right? And so that's the reason why they're saying that we we aren't getting rec anytime. 
it's been like a week or two that we haven't had recreation because of this busted-ass intercom, right? It's like, really, like, of all the things, like, the jail can't fucking get these intercoms. So they've been denying us rec. And I'm pretty sure that the UN declaration on, uh, like, standard minimum conditions of confinement specifically says something along the lines of, like, five hours of open sunlight and, and fresh air. And uh, it's actually really sad, too, because I think I might have been telling you about this before, but, you know, I, I work in the kitchen. And in the kitchen unit, because we're working during the day, we actually can't get to recreation at all. The outside part of recreation. We go to the gym, but we, we don't get the outside rec with the open air sunlight. So I haven't had any sunlight or fresh air since I've been working in the kitchen about four months. Wow. Period. That's sad. That's yeah, so they, yeah, it's crazy. So I have an assistant cook. You know, I work in the kitchen as a cook. I have an assistant that uh been, you know, because I've been busting my ass fucking work, working by myself. And, um, you know, the guy likes to play basketball, right? But he'd been down here, and he, they'd been denying the rec the entire time. So he... uh. He basically just been, you know, bugging him. He's like, let me talk to a sergeant. Let me, uh, let me get a grievance form, right, and saying about the recreation, right? Well, they actually wrote him up and got him kicked out of the kitchen just because, you know, demanding that he had access to recreation. Like, just, just like that, like, just yeah, like thank that. Thank you for, for asking for your right. <laughs> yeah, like, when he starts asking about grievance forms, that's when they, like, try to get ahead of the issue and kick him out. So that kind of yeah. sucks. No recreation. Another thing that happened was... uh. There was apparently an incident on another floor where there was, like, a big fight, and someone apparently, like, stabbed someone with a, one of those pens, like a pen. It's a regular-ass ballpoint pen, right? Yeah. So the, the very next day, they actually, like, raided every single fucking cell in the whole jail and, and confiscated everybody's long pens and gave us those little flexi pens. Actually, they didn't give us anything, but that's the... Oh, that, yeah, fucking pens. Same you, with oh, the so you, they're, like, rubbers. Yeah. Does that mean they had to search everyone's stuff, too, or did they just kind of, like, ask volunteers? Yeah, yeah, they searched everyone's stuff. I was in the kitchen when it happened, so I didn't get a chance to stash any of my stuff. But I had a really nice pen. I had a nice little gel pen, and they uh, they definitely took that. You know, there's nothing like writing letters or whatever with a really fine pen. There's nothing in the world like it. Yeah. Did they end up taking anything else or just pens? Um, You know, they always, like, take, like, little stuff like extra blankets or, uh, like, for example. Yeah, you're only like, allowed to have, like, one or two or something, right? Yeah. And, like, they give us, like, these little plastic cups. I mean, they're really small. They're, like, cup cup size, right? Like, an actual cup. Yeah. You know? But, uh, you know, in the kitchen, like, sometimes we, they have staff cups. They're, like, basically large Dixie cups. They're a little bit larger, and that's how we drink our coffee and stuff. You know, but they, uh, you know, they took they took my, my little cups as well. There's a little stupid stuff like that. Man, not the cups. I know, man. I wish... <laughs> it's the small things, though. I mean... That's like, what, what I was just going to say. It's the small things that... Make life bearable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's big things, of course, too, like the law library. If you remember last month, uh, closed. Yeah, it was it was closed for about a month. They opened it back up. There's no change, no explanation, no nothing. I following up on other book stuff that we talked about last month. You know, they banned books and magazines. Period. Uh, so I filed a grievance, and you know, I'm going through that whole spin zone of the grievance process. Like it's been a whole month. And, you know, I didn't hear anything about it, so I asked them, I was like, hey, uh, so you know I filed this grievance, you know, where the, where the fuck the chief at? Let me get the chief. And so they came and I was like, oh, we didn't even know you filed it. Like, we didn't get it. He's like, yeah, here go the receipt, the receipt. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, we'll take it. And uh, so now apparently they're looking at it again. So, yeah, the phone's messed up, the light's messed up, faucets, they took all our pens. Um, I got a existential question. Yeah. So the lighting thing, obviously the the blinking is the worst. Right, because almost like something that would possibly trigger epilepsy or like a scene from a horror movie. But 
yeah. leaving it on all night? Have they ever just done that sometimes too as a permanent solution? Well, the lights are always kind of on and all night, anyways. Um, there, it's oh, just, that's, 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 that's bad too. Yeah, it's it's dimmed. I mean, it's a lot of people. It's hard to sleep. You know, I could get I could get used to anything. It's it's just ain't nothing. You know, I mean, I've been through the worst. This place, you know. But the flickering is, is really crazy. And, and and it's funny that you bring up the epilepsy thing because another aspect of this raggedy-ass jail, speaking of broken intercoms, uh, there's actually a medical emergency in the women's unit where apparently uh, there's a woman who uh, was having an epileptic seizure and um, the other inmates were hitting the button trying to get the attention of the COs, but it wasn't working. So they, they began waving shirts in front of the cameras, trying to get their attention, and then eventually they did uh, find out. But it was, are you serious? Like, like in a situation like that, like, a busted ass deal like this, you know, is potentially life threatening. And and then of course they they took the person to the hospital and locked everybody in the entire jail down. Um, I got. Every time they every time they take someone to the hospital, they basically lock everybody down because they're so short on deputies that anytime someone goes on an outside medical visit. So, uh, I mean, yeah. So it's one thing to think about like a broken ass jail with broken intercoms, you know, taking our recreation, but also think of like people's lives people's are also safety. Written. Yeah. Burlington, 
Hamilton, Ontario, Fort Lauderdale. Gainesville had big glow sticks, apparently. Tacoma, Washington at the Northwest Detention Center, which is an ICE prison owned by Geo Group, a private corporation. We have Los Angeles, where there was an Antifa and anti-ICE block, where there were loud and bright flares confirmed. In Baldwin, Michigan, at the recently reopened North Lake Correctional Facility, the only immigrant detention center in the entire Midwest, also owned by Geo. Also, yeah, we also have confirmed fireworks in Durham, North Carolina, Minneapolis, Sacramento, New York City outside of MCC had a big crowd. Montreal, yeah, Montreal had fireworks and over 200 people showed up. For Unicorn Riot, wrote a little uh, a little piece I would like to read. Yeah. All right. So, as in most places, alarming was the unseasonable worth on this snowless New Year's Eve in Alexandria, Virginia, when comrades and friends marched from the federal courthouse near the old town district to the jail down by the highway. We were a festive bunch. Flares and fireworks were lit. Classic tuba brigades were assembled, and the kazoo and cowbell crew turned up for hours, rolling from one side of the jail to the other, howling the whole way, looking out for each other's safety, but also to encourage each other to experiment with new ways of making ragey abstract noise to let Jeremy and Chelsea and everyone else locked up in that raggedy-ass crap jail know we're out there for them. Yeah. The physical location of jails and prisons are important to note, not just for strategic and tactical reasons, but also to highlight the myriad of ways our jails are hidden and normalized. From rural small towns where economies depend on hosting visitors and feeding guards, to industrial quarters with no foot traffic to visibly see the jail, to faceless, bootless monoliths towering over downtown nine-to-five commuters, to occupying entire city blocks in the middle of highly criminalized working-class and immigrant neighborhoods, the violence of the prison system is made invisible and believed inevitable. Now, Alexandria Detention Center is nestled between multiple massive condo complexes, complete with full-size soccer fields, gyms, nearby craft cider bars, and fancy restaurants to serve the dog-walking and jogging yuppies scarcely about. Their minds boggled, viewing from the window of the presence of us revelers of chaos, banging pots and blasting plastic dollar store air horns in their protected enclaves, pointing out the prison on their doorstep. The proximity of bubble-world upper-crusters to the jail illustrated the intersections of gentrification and mass incarceration. Whenever they build condos, they wage a war in affordable housing and drive out poor people. No doubt they'll be the first ones to call the cops anytime they see anyone having fun something I'd wager people rarely ever have in Alexandria. However, one resident did bravely approach us and inquired about our clamor, and after checking out a quick fuck all prisons handbill, joined us in the ruckus and started chanting at the jail too. As far as we had all known, this had never happened before. The pigs didn't even know how to respond to us. They were slow to arrive, intimidated, even asking for the leader of our gaggle of merry wielders of rebellion. We ignore them and keep on chanting. We decided to dip on our own time and disappeared into the dark promise of the new year, energized to escalate the struggle for abolition, find new ways to bring it down. Free Jeremy! Free Chelsea! Fire uh, the fucking prison! Free them all! Yeah. Free them all. Free them all. You want to know something actually really cool about the noise, well, related to the noise? No. So there is a worker at the local grocery store that I go to whose name is... AJ, he's really nice, and every time I see him when I go grocery shopping, I say, hey, you know, what's up, and we chat a little bit, and he happened to ask me what I had done for my New Year, so I honestly told him, went to a noise demo at a jail, he said, what's a noise demo, so I told him, he said, that's awesome, and he relayed a story about how when his uncle had been locked up um, as a kid, him and his mom used to stand outside the jail and yell and bang things and, like, hold up signs so that his uncle could see his family. And wow, that's adorable. So, like, 
noise demos have been going on for a lot longer than you think, and they're not always big. Sometimes they're just families, you know, standing outside of prisons and yelling and being like, we're out here. And AJ said that all the other prisoners always always used to come to the windows because they always used to really appreciate, like, seeing people out there, like, making noise and saying hi. So, you know, like, it's not just us that are saying these things. Like, prisoners appreciate when you show up and make noise. Right. I mean, uh, it certainly builds a connection between, you know, the people in in the so-called free world and those who are locked in these crap jails. The connection is powerful, really. uh, It's like getting a letter. You know, everybody knows mail calls is what's up. Uh, One thing that was interesting about the jail demo uh, was that uh, it was very cool to be able to call you, Grace, and uh, and I was like, yeah, I see y'all, but... Hey, move, move 30 feet to the left. And yeah, that, was, that was very cool. That was very cool. <laughs> yeah, real time. It was very cool to be able to be like, let everybody outside be like, all right, Jeremy says move like 30 feet to the left and he can see everybody better. <laughs> Yeah, and so, uh, you know, GEO, 
the private prisons, the primarily immigrant detention centers too. Like for example, like in the federal system, like if most of the time, if you're convicted of like immigration-related offense, like illegal reentry, like you don't, get, you you often aren't sent to a BOP facility. You're you're often sent to like a private facility, like a, a CCA or a GEO. The reason being is because they are legally able to provide less services, like less health care, less education programming. It's basically a for-profit prison, so they basically cut corners and, and they feel that they could uh, stuff undocumented people into these private prisons and give them, you know, less stuff and basically make the time a lot more horrible. Right. And so there's been a number of actions against GEO in the past couple of months. Like you said, there was those two noise demonstrations, but also a couple of months ago there was a huge demonstration at their headquarters in Florida where I believe they had arrested like nine people. They like chained themselves to the, the doors or something like that. Also, GEO and other private Prison companies are exempt from FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests. Yeah, I was actually just going to say that. Um, it's really important that these things are put out to the light because I was just going to say that on Friday, the Trump administration uh, designated the entire Customs and Border Protection Agency as a security agency, which shields it from certain type FOIA requests. So it's going to get a lot harder to know these kinds of things. And of course, the Trump administration are major proponents of the private prison industry. Yeah. It, what Trump did put uh, uh, CBP agents in the same category as like FBI agents. Mm. So it shields them from a lot. Um, it shields them from a lot. Um, I don't know how far that's going to extend into things like private prisons, but honestly, I would not be surprised if it does, especially immigration prisons. I would not be surprised if that extends further and we start seeing uh, more mistreatment of people in, you know, private immigration prisons because of it, because there's now going to be even less oversight. Right. I mean, if you remember, like, they were refusing to let reporters or even Congress people into some of the detention facilities, except for, like, I think, like, the pre-planned vice president visit where, you know, they visit, like, the one cell that they already had pre-arranged, pre-painted type of thing. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, of course, Trump, you know, he uh, was all about the private prisons. They signed new contracts. They they financed his inauguration or major campaign donors. So fucking corrupt. The the private prison that donates for Trump's campaign benefits most from his immigration policies. Exactly. And there's, I believe, there's a number of hunger strikes and uh, even riots at several of these uh, facilities. Yeah, there's, there's the, been a number of high hunger strikes in 2019. In fact, uh, the website Freedom for Immigrants has documented at least 1,396 people on hunger strike at over 18 detention centers since May 2015. In August. In Louisiana, at the Pine Prairie Ice Processing Center, there were 115 immigrants doing a hunger strike for over five days when the staff actually used rubber bullets and uh, physical violence and placed people in solitary and blocked them from contacting families and attorneys for a while. There were photos that were put out there. Of course, the ICE spokesperson denied it. We also have a number in, also in Louisiana at the Bossier Sheriff Medium Security Facility. They were also pepper sprayed. In Texas, we have hunger striker in the fifth week who is in the El Paso Service Processing Center taking to an ER. Apparently, they were force feeding. There were also asylum seekers in their fourth week in New Mexico at the Otero County Processing Center who were transferred to Chrome Detention Center in Miami where presumably for the purpose of the transfer was also trying to initiate forced hydration by court order. 
there were also a group of detained asylum seekers who are all known as the El Paso Nine. They were also receiving forced feeding for nearly a month, and that was uh, that prompted Congress to actually write letter for an immediate end to the forced feeding. There were also 150 people in hunger strike at the River Correctional Facility, which is a private prison owned by the LaSalle Management Corporation in Louisiana. Hunger okay. strike, a powerful weapon uh, in our hands. Uh, I mean, it really speaks to the depraved conditions that we're going through that people would really feel the need that that's the only way that they could get their voices heard, that the only way to bring attention to the, the horrible conditions is to be force-fed, be strapped and, and, and force-fed. I was actually just going to say that, sadly, on January 29th, uh, one of the five asylum seekers at LaSalle Detention Center, Louisiana, which is operated by the GEO Group, uh, was sadly deported. Damn. Yeah, he was um, deported to India. He was one of five asylum seekers of South Asian origin who went on a hunger strike actually back in October. Sucks to do all that time and, and then get kicked out. Like, are you serious? Um, uh, two of the five men, uh, including the one who was deported this week, uh, I'm quoting this from the new from the New York Times. Two of the men, including the one who was deported this week have been subjected to involuntary force feeding through a nasogastric tube. At least one has accepted dietary supplements out of fear he too would be force fed. Well, takes a lot of courage, takes a lot of bravery for sure to, you know, facing the worst conditions. What's next around the noise, Jay? Well, oh, I, I someone just sent me an article I got right here. Trick cereal is bringing back the classic fruit shapes from the 1990s. <sighs> That was a close one. See, now we're getting into the important shit. Okay. Do <laughs> you remember that meme? Someone sent me the meme. I think it was you, Jay. Uh, like, <laughs> right, because they changed the shapes to like regular like circles or whatever. And uh, the, the worry was that as you grow up, it turns a regular circle, and we just don't know if it looks like that because we're adults and tricks are for kids. Right. Meme explained. Anyway. Well, we also have this fair evasion movement going on basically all over the world, but just now on January 31st in New York City, there was a vast decentralized flash mob action that occurred at multiple locations in New York City, highlighting the barriers that turnstiles and pay transit systems uh, create. And uh, this is in particular response to New York City being set to hire 500 new transit officials uh, to basically tackle the loss of from fare evasion, which actually the cost excels the uh, amount that they're they're reporting lost by $50 million. Hmm. So people are rightfully outraged that they're using money to to basically hire more cops to arrest and detain people instead of offering reduced fares for people of lower income or just to make transit free universally, as it should be. It's not all that dissimilar from things like stop and frisk and you know, exactly. many other policies that are put in place, especially in places like New York City, they overwhelmingly target people of color and poor people, you know, poor people of color. Yeah. Right. And that's exactly the uh, same debunked broken windows theory that was put out in the uh, the 90s that Giuliani and all his, his cricket ass clowns fucking up. Uh, Said that basically we need to clean up all the lifestyle, you know the you know the homeless on the street, the, uh, the train hoppers, uh, uh, the fare jumpers, and, uh, and that's exactly the sort of rhetoric that is being used to justify all the transit cops they're hiring out. The same rhetoric that the 
And the sex workers, don't forget Giuliani's war on sex workers. I think that was huge, too. So January 31st movement was called FTP3, and it laid out four demands. Number one, free fan the New York City transit system. Number two, no cops on the trains or in or on the stations. Number three, the end of police harassment of street vendors and performers. And number four, full accessibility for all. Public transit, even in large cities like New York, is still highly, highly inaccessible for disabled people, which makes things like fare increases even more ludicrous because disabled people are even more likely to live in poverty due to unemployment or underemployment. And, you know, they often rely on things like public transit to get places and it's so just highly inaccessible. Yeah, that's true. And of course the uh transit strike is also what kicked off the huge insurrection that's gone in Chile. Correct. Yeah. You never know, it's just another austerity measure to uh, basically criminalize poverty. All these fines for small and petty infractions, they they're really just like just a a major tax. And in Chicago, there was also a movement to decriminalize fare evasion as Mayor Lightfoot also considers hiring more fucking pigs on the CTA. We also have uh, Metra. It's the suburban line in Chicago. have also uh, publicly expressed how they're exploring other methods to prevent fare evasion, like such as the very classist eliminating of paying of cash on trains. Obviously, it privileges people with credit cards over paying in cash methods, which is the right. classist. I remember when they got rid of the paper transits, that was terrible. Right. And also, they're trying to make it all you have to pay in the, at the station, which if anyone who ever seen the mission knows, that shit takes forever to fucking stand in line, and nothing is more agonizing than standing in line way yeah. too late to miss a train. So so do your part. Hop a turnstile. Yeah, that's right. Evade. Get away. Also, I believe in California, they're putting in new turnstiles that, like, go all the way up to your head that, you know, are especially dangerous for, like, people in wheelchairs, that if they close too soon, they will literally close on people's heads if they can't get through fast enough. It's just the whole thing is just kind of ridiculous. And, you know, again, it just criminalizes poverty. Climate change is such a big issue right now. You would think that we'd be doing everything we can to make things like public transit more accessible instead of less accessible. Right. They're busy researching more hostile architecture to exactly. physical barriers, yeah. Security apparatus. They're doing everything they can to keep people off of public and mass transit instead of encouraging people to use public and mass transit. Well, what fucking Elon Musk was fucking trying to get a contract from Chicago to try to build a super subway that would go straight from O'Hare to Chicago. So that oh, yeah, I saw that, yeah. Upper crossers can basically ride a poverty-free train. I was going to say, so what, they don't have to mingle with the poor people? Like, uh, the, the regular folks, they don't have to anymore. They already but, have a train. It's called the Blue Line. Like, yeah, it goes straight to the most convenient, easy thing. runs 24-7. It literally line. goes straight into the airport. You don't even have to leave the airport. You just go right. downstairs. And... Yeah, luckily, fucking Elon Musk failed to get to the subway just as he'll fail to get to Mars. That's a story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of uh, Chicago, uh, I believe you have a follow-up on the uh, legalization in Illinois, huh? Yeah. So 
as uh, everyone uh, <coughs> excuse me knows that uh, we're in Illinois right now, and the world did not end, and so we are actually facing a major weed shortage with the legal weed hype draining the supplies of the very limited amount of dispensaries with licenses to sell recreationally. Local growers literally cannot keep up. Lines are around the block to buy weed that is double the street price. $40 million have been spent on weed in only the first month. Remember to support the informal economy. A couple things we didn't talk about last time that obviously, since it remains illegal on the federal level, it actually still remains a major barrier for undocumented folk who basically can't smoke because if they're even arrested, much less convicted, they face removal procedures. And actually, over a 1,000 people are deported yearly because of cannabis, even in states where it's legal. So that remains a major barrier. It also remains a major barrier for people who are on any sort of governmental housing assistance, uh, colloquially known as Section 8. If you are on any sort of Section 8 housing assistance, you are not allowed to smoke weed in your own home, even if it is legal on the state level, or even if it is not legal on the state level, if you have a medical card you are still not allowed to smoke it in your own home because it is still illegal on a federal level and the money for Section 8 comes from the federal government. So uh, if you have a medical card or it is legal on the state level, uh, you are still not allowed to smoke it in your own home, which obviously unfortunately impacts the poor, the disabled, people who are maybe not working because of illness and who really might need it the most. True that. Employers can actually still maintain a drug-free work environment, which basically gives them the right to terminate people for, you know, smoking cannabis. Nonetheless, they can still face protection from the federal government for terminating an employee for being for using cannabis, even though it's legal in the state. So that's just one more barrier. And you know how employers will sometimes use any sort of justification to have for fire people that either they don't like or that cause too much problem, you know, perhaps organizing in the workplace. I think I remember also reading that um, Trump was wanting to require drug tests for people that are on food stamps and uh, welfare. That's been a thing that's been going around on in various states on the state level for years. Uh, different governors wanting to pass laws that say that food stamp or uh, TANF recipients should be drug tested to, in order to receive their benefits. It's pretty much failed in every state, but again, on a federal level, that would be a different story. I don't know how that would work since most uh, food stamps, the way it's done is a little bit weird. Uh, the federal government distributes the money to the states. The states then distribute the money themselves. I'm not quite sure how that would work. A lot of families that do receive food stamps are parents with children. I mean, children are one of the largest recipients of food stamps in this country. So, you know, you're not hurting the people you're 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 hurting children honestly you're 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 hurting children you're there's more restrictions on food shelter these are like human rights and the austerity measures like transit fair evasion uh criminalization you know just larger measures the government all around the world are doing to keep people down no these are all just other measures to criminalize poverty i mean it's the same attitude that we see when people complain about, oh, I saw a poor person with an iPhone, they can't be that poor, you know, like, oh yeah, it's 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 that same attitude. Their lives are so under scrutiny. Like, well, if you can't afford, you 
you know, 275 for the train, how can you afford a phone? Or if you can't afford, you know, 275 for a train, how can you afford the internet? You know, it's to complain about it, you know, or they complain that these are quote first world problems. You know, it's right and promote negative stereotypes about people who are struggling by by assuming that oh they're all on drugs and it's their own fault if they can't get their life together why they're in the situation that they're in instead of right exactly it's that we we should just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just sort of the bootstraps ah always the bootstraps man (laughs) I'm sorry I had to eat my bootstraps. (laughs) <laughs> God, pull a Charlie Chaplin. I I had to burn my bootstraps to stay warm during the winter. I'm sorry. Yeah. I think there's a wobbly song about that. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> yeah. I feel the void, no cockazoid can fuck with me I am a dick, but my click is sucker free My shit is elegant, still just in development Heavy artillery in the truck like an elephant There's no embellishments, fellas, but I done felonies Never regret a righteous vendetta paid, it's an element Of street culture, I'm carving you like a sculpture of ice My knife slicing you right, stabbing a celibate Remember who came Well, as if 2020 wasn't off to a bad enough start We have 13 inmates dying while being imprisoned within the Mississippi Department of Corrections. Nine of them in the Mississippi State Penitentiary, apart from the jail that's responsible for the deaths. The governor actually closed down Unit 29, which is the the unit where a number of these deaths have occurred. Mississippi State Prison System is one of the largest in the country, also is underfunded and understaffed, which creates problems for inmates where they are like not getting the resources they're met to do their time because there's lack of guards or funding food or resources and the prison system creating the conditions which are causing people to die. People were found hung and of course uh, media always blames it on uh, gang violence and all that but this has been 13th since 2020 has begun and it's an alarming unfolding situation. Right, I did the articles uh, in the USA Today about uh, and yeah like you said the media and the prison officials of course are so quick to blame uh, prisoners for the violence they often blame the gangs or whatever. But, I mean, the reality is uh, is the conditions themselves are often what leads to the conflicts in the first place. I mean, if you remember, like, the, the big prison riots, like, uh, I think it was, like, Lucasville, that it was originally caused by uh, them forcing a TB tests, which had, like, some type of, like, like animal product on it that onto Muslim inmates, and, and that's what kicked it off. I mean, imagine we're basically lab rats, right? And they just keep trying to stuff more and more lab rats in the cage, right, and keep trying to take away the amount of food and take away the amount of water and just agitating the conditions to the breaking point, and, and they just turn the pressure up. And, and, yeah, of course, people are going to start biting at each other. So uh, Yeah, and, I mean, this is what this is a quote from uh, uh, Erica Jackson, whose husband is incarcerated at Parkman. She told the New York Times that some inmates have not, per, have not been permitted to bathe in a month uh, and are killing rats to preserve what little foods they have. God, I read that, too. That's unbelievable. Rats? Killing rats? Killing rats, yes. I think that's a good thing. So, I mean, the uh, situations there, prisoners have been using cell phones to send messages to the outside, and the pictures are just horrific. I mean, mold everywhere. Sewage. Sewage, raw sewage just everywhere. Broken toilets, wires just dangling everywhere. I mean, it's truly, truly just 
beyond what any of your nightmares could think, and people are being forced to live in this environment day in and day out. You know, it's absolutely just horrific. Raggedy ass jails. It's a system designed for misery that is poorly operated. Even a well-operated system is still a prison. It still incarcerates human beings. I mean, it still puts human beings in cages. I mean, I don't think any of these systems can be well-operated, private, I mean, for-profit, not not for-profit. I mean, that's what kind of gets me when people always focus, well, we need to set on, you know, private prisons. No, we need to set down all prisons. It's not, the problem is not just private prisons. The problem is prisons. Exactly. Uh, So often people say, oh, the criminal justice system is broken, the prison system is broken. But in actuality, I would say it's operating exactly as it's designed. Oh, no, it's operating exactly as it's designed. It is absolutely a feature and not a bug. It's absolutely designed. It's designed to dehumanize, to strip away, like, every last thread of humanity that you have. Uh, So one thing I want to encourage is in these situations – where they turn the pressure up and, and, and people may be tempted to unleash their angers and frustrations out on each other, I would say, why is it that they're able to get away with just having one guard in a, in a unit full of 150 prisoners? Like, hey, we outnumber them. We outnumber them. You know what I mean? Let, let's let's uh, turn our frustrations in the right direction. You know what I mean? Right. Prisoner solidarity. No. Right. That's so what the difference is in uniting fight. People who are causing problems in prisons are not the inmates, it's the guards. It's the institution that cheapens everything. Now, 
I'm not required to say nothing, man. Like I, you know, they say often in these cases that citizens have some type of obligation to the government to testify. There's a law in the books, Title 28, USC 1826. Whenever a witness in any proceeding before a grand jury refuses without just cause, that's without just cause, shown to comply with an order of the court, may summarily order his confinement at a suitable place until such time as a witness is willing to give such testimony. That means at any given time, anybody could be brought in front of a grand jury and to answer questions, and if they refuse to answer questions, they could be locked up as a way to coerce their uh, testimony. And the only way to get out is to testify or to await the duration of the grand jury, which is a maximum of 18 months. So, and, and this grand jury thing, you know, some of these cases, the court rulings are just point to some Anglo legal traditions. Some of like owing obligations to your king and queen, whatever the hell they call it, democracy, I guess, this legal system. <laughs> but I mean, like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not obligated to this government. I don't recognize legitimacy of their laws or their courts. You know, I have, I have a burning American flag on my back, you know. But I, I answer to the people, though. So I want to uh, use this podcast as a, a way of discussing why they were targeting me, what, what questions they were asking, and so forth. Because currently I know there's not a whole lot that's going on out there that, that is looking too deeply into this. And if anybody's curious, you could actually find the legal motions and uh, the dockets, all that are on. Uh, I believe they're slightly redacted, but they're unsealed, uh, and they should be linked to on the website and Twitter, or they could just check pacer.gov. There will be links in the description section of this podcast. Right. Now, they, they intend grand juries are meant to be a secretive process, but I'm not going to be silent about it. To blow the damn whistle again. Blow the damn whistle, right? You've never done that before. I know this is a totally <laughs> new experience. I don't know why they expected uh, that this is going to turn out any differently anyways. I see no reason why November should be forgotten. So, I'm at Alexander Detention Center. The first court date, we had already filed a, a, a first motion to show cause as to why uh, the court should not squash the warrant. We're not going to go too much into the legal details here, but uh, basically I was brought with a van with others, cuffed, you know, ankles, uh, waist, a little short drive uh, through Alexandria. You could actually see the federal building from the jail, right? So it's just like perpetually sitting out there. You look out the window, there's a federal building. The federal building looks from the outside and the inside in the bullpens and all that, just like New York's federal building, which is kind of weird. It's a big difference when you're sitting in the bullpen. It's kind of kind of grimy and, you know, just baggy, right? And then you walk into, like, the, the courtroom, and there's such a contrast. I mean, wood-paneled walls, nice carpet. I sat down in a rolling chair, right? And, and it was it was so cool because it was, like, the first time I sat in a rolling chair in, like, forever. Silver time. lining. I did, yeah, silver lining. There was a couple, actually. Matter of fact, in the bullpen, they gave us, like, this bag of sandwiches, uh, sandwich, right? And it had orange. Like, and I swear that was a, it was the first time I had an orange in forever. Years. Years. A fucking orange. Because, you know, in the feds, they only give you apples in the feds. You also cough. Yes. Yes. And I'm going to get to that later. Get to that later. <laughs> you also got to show up early and walk behind the judge's bench and pretend to be the judge if they judge, right. not let E be judged. <laughs> I free you all. Right. Now, of course, the court dates in the, uh, these grand jury cases, they're not open to the public. They're sealed at this point. And the main thing was uh, the, what we argued in court that first day was that uh, being that I was a federal prisoner already, the, the government was trying to say that it wasn't technically a subpoena or a writ. It was they used an internal Department of Justice form called USA 475. All right, so now normally when the grand jury summons someone, they use a subpoena, right? Or if you're incarcerated, they use a writ. But 
in my case, they used what they're now using an internal Department of Justice form called the USA 475, which is uh, it's not signed by a judge. And the trick is we're not afforded the same due process rights as it would if it was a subpoena or a writ. Matter of fact, I didn't ever even got a copy of it, the document. Basically, just a, a form from the Department of Justice to the marshals that says, move this prisoner, like as if like I'm a piece of inventory or equipment that they could just like file and, and here I am in Alexandria. So anyways, I'm here in court this first day to hear from the judge on the motion that we had filed to squash. And long story short, he said that I had received all the process and information that I'm going to get and that he ordered me to testify tomorrow for the grand jury, just like that. And then we could be over and back in Memphis before the weekend. <laughs> just like that, right? So, nice and easy, right? That. Just, uh, easy so that was that day. Uh, and, you know, my heart was thumping because, you know, like I said, it's a really nice courtroom, and I don't know why it was just so weird. So weird. I mean, there was really nothing, nothing regular about this whole process. Nothing at all. Uh, and it got even weirder the next day when I was brought in for the grand jury. Now, normally they bring people with the vans, with everybody else, goes to court, you know, chained. But this time, when I went downstairs, it was three G-men, three suits, like straight-up government-like agent type shit, right? And uh, they're like, oh, Mr. Hamm, we can't talk to you, but cuff up, right? But they cuffed me in the front. They didn't cuff my floor or, or my ankles, and uh, they drove me in a regular car, right? Just quiet. It's real quiet, right? And I was like, uh, are you guys marshals? And it was real quiet, and they just looked at me, and one of them was like, no, we're FBI. I'm like, what? FBI? But anyways, it gets to the federal building. This real awkward silence, right? Looking around at all the condominiums around the jail. So instead of going to like the bullpens, we were taken to like this weird section of the building. It's a conference room with like nice floors. I guess it's the grand jury area. And I'm brought into like a little conference room, and it's just me and the FBI, right? And they got a bunch of magazines on the table, and I'm still sitting there for like 15 minutes, right? So they give me the magazines, right? And there's like a couple of magazines, like Autobahn, you know, the Bird magazine, uh, Sports Illustrated, and the Washington Examiner, right? So I, I start looking at the Washington Examiner, right? And then the FBI guy's like, hold, hold on, hold on, let me take that. He, he looks at it. He's like, nah, we can't give this to you one. I'm like, what the fuck? And he's like, yeah, we, this one ain't been cleared. He was like, dude, are you fucking serious? Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Like, I guess it's like a jury room. Maybe, like, the jury, like, had magazines on the way or something. So anyways, my lawyers arrive, and they bring coffee, right, from the streets, real street coffee. That blew my motherfucking mind. Blew my mind. You were like, the I'm talking. <laughs> you are like, I'll say anything. <laughs> right. Like if I can sit here and drink coffee all day, I'll tell you whatever you want. And I had like a like a croissant with like chocolate croissants. Yeah, it was it was pretty sick, pretty sick. But anyways, um, you know the, the grand jury itself, there's no you're not allowed to have the lawyer in the room. You know, there's no judge. It was like a classroom. So anyways, I had to you know prepared with my lawyers what I was gonna say and all that. So you I'm, had, I'm you walked had a in. chance to prepare. You had a chance to prepare. Well, I didn't really have a whole chance to prepare because, like I said, when I was in Memphis, I had one phone call with my lawyers. And I was brought to Alexandria. I got to meet with my lawyers for like an hour. And then, like, I was brought to the court. They the squash, you know, they had prepared the motion. And and that was it. Then now here I am, this meeting right for like a couple of minutes before the grand jury itself. Like, so I wouldn't say a whole lot of time to prepare. You know, we had asked the judge to delay the proceedings so that we could prepare an argument. But anyways, we basically knew what the overall goal of what the grand jury was. It was investigating WikiLeaks. I mean, why else would I be brought to the Eastern District of Virginia where, of course, Chelsea Manning had already been subpoenaed you know, just a few months earlier. Yet, I wanted to know what the questions were. So the whole idea was I would lure out the substantive questions. You know, if I refuse right away, we wouldn't really know. So uh, so basically, I'm brought in from the room, and there's like, like 20 people. There's a prosecutor, 
and 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 the grand jury and stuff is you know there's all white people, all old white people. Damn. Yeah, and uh, then they had a Bible, right? I was like, what the fuck? And uh, they said, swear tells you the whole truth, right? I put my, I did, definitely did not put my hand to that Bible, <laughs> but I did, I did say I affirm. So bed down. It's like a me and the prosecutors are sitting at the table in front, like a classroom, and they begin saying that I have uh, immunity. It was, it was basically the trick that you know you hear on you know TV shows like oh, I refuse to Fifth Amendment. I'm, I'm refusing a Fifth Amendment grounds. Where he's like, what is it? I plead the Fifth. I plead the Fifth. Right. Well, the trick around that is that they say that they're giving you immunity. That way you you can speak without and it won't be used to incriminate you, right? But the trick is if you don't speak, then it is incriminating to you. So that was that's the trick that they undermine the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. So anyways, he says that I have immunity, that I have the right to uh, interrupt the questions to go speak with my lawyer, which I did several times. The first couple questions he asked for my name, right? He asked what I was currently incarcerated for, what my charge was, it was like computer hacking, right? And so basically, like, he asked a few small, like, nonsense questions, like, basically all public information. He asked, like, what was the name of the company that I hacked? Uh, I was like, Straffer. He asked if I was familiar with Anonymous. I was like, yep. Uh, he asked if I could describe it. And I was like, thinking, I was like, well, you know what? This is all pretty well documented. So I just basically said it was like an informal group of tech-savvy people using social media, computer technical skills to fight for a cost. He asked if I knew what a denial or a DDoS was. I was like, yep. And then he was like, have I ever heard of Operation Payback? And I'm like, yep. And then he asked, is, did I hack the Arizona Department of Public Safety? Right. And that was uh, one of the targets that I had uh, pled guilty to, part of my relevant conduct. So I said, yeah. Then the next question was, the next question was, after you hacked the Arizona Department of Public Safety, what did you do with the hacked information? Right. And I was like, yeah, now we're getting to, yeah, this, I think this is the moment that, you know, I went out to talk to my lawyers. And I was like, yep, I think it's time, which I definitely give them the line. So. You know, I read the line. It was like, I object to this question as it is a violation of my constitutional statutory rights. Yep. And then he's like, okay, uh, well, let me ask you another question. Who else was involved in your hack for the Stratford company? I was like, yep, let me go talk to my lawyers real quick. Walk out. You know, all the jury members are just sitting there staring at me, just slowly shuffling, all cuffed. Going with my lawyers. Yep. So I'm just writing the questions down. I come back. He's like, yep. I object to this question as it's a violation of my constitutional and statutory rights. Then he's like, okay, well, uh, we're going to ask you a couple more questions. I'm just going to read them off to you right now, and then you can go talk to your lawyers about it if you want. He's like, yep. So then they asked, ended up being seven questions that they just gave me right after it. And those questions were, why did you choose Straffer as a target? When did you begin speaking directly with Julian Assange? Did Julian Assange ever encourage you to commit computer hacking? Did Julian Assange ever suggest particular companies or organizations Swami should hack? And uh, did you and Julian Assange ever agree that you would hack companies and that he would publish the resulting hacked documents? All of which, of course, I answered. I object to this question as it is a violation of my constitutional and statutory rights. I answered the first few questions uh, to lure out the more substantive questions, because if I were to refuse immediately when I asked my name, they would end it immediately. So I answered the first few, you know, most of them were already a matter of public record or they were, you know, in regards to crimes that I had already pled guilty to. Uh, but otherwise, I have to say, in a situation, you know, where you are being questioned or you're arrested, it's it's really best to simply refuse in all circumstances. You know, there's no way to win a conversation with the police. You can't outsmart them. They're trained investigators. Uh, and, you know, in most cases, you'll, you could unwittingly 
you know, help their investigation, you know, even without even realizing at the time. So just to say, I want to talk to my lawyer. I do want to get to talk more about like the nature of those questions and what they kind of mean, but I want to continue like telling this little story about how this all happened, right? So, yeah, right after that, go back to my lawyers, finish up the coffee. They're like, yeah, we're going to go back upstairs and, and we're going to move on this contempt here and we're going to hold you in contempt. He's like, yep, yep, saw this is coming. So back to the bullpens, uh, and I realized there was like four fucking cameras in this bullpen. I'm in, I'm in the bullpen all by myself, and there's like four surveillance. I'm like, what the fuck? All pointing in different directions in the same fucking cell. So we go to court. They argue, yeah, we should hold them in contempt right here and now. And I was like, yeah, my lawyer's like, we need uh, more time to prepare an argument, just cause. So the prosecutors argue that I should immediately be held in contempt, and that any delay would not be coercive because the time I'm currently spent not being in contempt is counting towards my original sentence, right? In which the judge said that if I was cited for contempt, that the time I would be spent in contempt would be addition to my current sentence. So basically, you're going to freeze the time of my sentence, right? Um, and this is interesting because the original statute, that Title 28, Section 1826, it actually doesn't say anything about how it applies to prisoners who are currently serving time. You know, it doesn't say anything about interrupting their sentence or whatever like that, right? And so that same day, actually, the same day that I, I had realized that that it would actually freeze the free, uh, serving of my federal sentence. Like, I had no idea that that was going to be the case until that day. But not that that changes, of course, my position. You know, I mean, what's a couple of months after I've done this much time? You know what I mean? So my lawyers are demanding process, extra time, transcripts of the grand jury proceeding, transcripts of the government document that summoned me to Alexandria. No, 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 no. Then the judge uh, and the prosecutors have an ex parte conference. They, uh, they, they froze the proceedings. The prosecutors went to the judge and, like, talked quietly while they actually played, like, some type of white noise, like, over the speakers to, like, prevent any of us from even hearing what they were talking about, which is the weirdest I've ever heard. Like, I've never heard of something like that happening before. Hey, what did it sound like? It just sounded like a TV that was just, like, a white noise, like, shh. And I've got the transcripts, and it just says transcript suspended for ex parte conference between the judge and the prosecutors, right? So, again, this is, like, part of the irregular nature of the grand jury process in the criminal justice system, you know, where, like, we don't even have knowledge of, because normally any type of filings or whatever like that, to my understanding, would have to be shared between all parties. So, yeah, anyways, the judge orders uh, that the objections to my arguments about process and grand jury abuse are overruled. Then he actually called for me personally, Mr. Ram, would you please step to the, the podium? I'm like, what the fuck? He's like, Mr. Ram, I order you. Mr. Ram, I order you to return to the grand jury or you could be cited for civil or criminal contempt for the duration of up to 18 months and possibly fined. The sentence would be in addition to my current sentence. Blah, 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 right? And, I'm just, and, and he didn't ask me any questions. He just basically just wanted to, like, wag his finger at me, like, like I'm holding you in contempt. I, you better think. He's like, you better talk to your lawyers. You better think about this. Like, and he delayed the proceedings for a month, right, until the when the grand jury sits again, right? 
So uh, basically, I just bought us the time to prepare a just cause motion, which we filed. And uh, like I had mentioned earlier, Title 28, Section 1826, whenever a witness in any proceeding for a grand jury refuses without just cause, that it may be ordered, confined, blah, blah, blah. Um, and if anybody's curious as to you know the, the meat of those arguments, you could look online at taser.gov or on, a, on our website where our motions are filed. A month later, they didn't even bother bringing me in front of uh, the grand jury. They just basically had a contempt hearing. And so once again, it wasn't a public hearing at first. It's still sealed at this point. We filed a, a motion uh, for just cause, basically saying that I did have just cause as to why I, I should refuse the questions. And that was based on grand jury abuse, the First Amendment rights, uh, the fact that it, it violated the spirit of the plea agreement that I had signed, and the fact that I, 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 I pled guilty with the understanding that I wouldn't have to cooperate or, or testify. And yet here I am again being punished for basically the same thing. And so the judge basically rejected all of it. You know, and then once again he asked me to stand in front of the podium. He said, do you understand the court has ordered you the last hearing to testify the grand jury? He's like, are you going to refuse to answer questions? And I was like, I believe I have just cause as, a, as to why I'm refusing to answer these questions. He's like, so you are refusing to answer these questions. So like, with just cause. And he's like, well, as I indicated earlier, I've reviewed your objections, and unfortunately for you, they're just not sufficient. I don't think there's any legal basis that justifies you not answering these questions, which are fairly straightforward. And I think you could easily answer in quick fashion if you wanted to. So I'm finding you having knowingly admitted and violated blah, 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 blah. Right? So basically, contempt, da, 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 You know, they said it was a waste of time that I was wasting with time. It's like, dude, let me tell you about time and wasting it. Anyways, so the time that I'm now spent in contempt is theoretically designed to be coercing me, make me think about the fact that I'm refusing to answer these questions as if it's going to make a difference, right? So this is free time, this free dead time up to 18 months. Been about four months now. Still don't feel like talking. So the story doesn't end here. Uh, I was brought downstairs to the bullpen, right? And the day that I was found in contempt was actually the same day that this is nothing to do with the contempt hearing, but uh, it's part of the story is that uh, those two uh, Giuliani's boys, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, they were actually in court in the same jail, uh, the federal building in the bullpen the same day. Their extradition hearing to New York was in the same day as uh, my contempt hearing, right? So I'm being coughed along with the other people going back to Alexandria Detention Center. right? And I'm looking at these two like creepy old white dudes, right? And they're wearing street clothes. They're pretty nice, right? But they, they look haggard as hell, like they had a really rough time. They're all just sitting there on the bench. And I'm just looking. I'm like, what the fuck? Are these, are these zombies? You know, we're all cuffed, right? And I, I had already heard that they had they had been in court that day, but I figured that they weren't in jail. But And then so we were riding in the van. They brought us all in the van. You know, I only had like 30 seconds in the bullpens with them. I'm in the van. We're driving by the front of the federal building on the way back to the jail. And there's all these cameras and stuff, like a lot of media and press. And everybody's like, someone was like, well, who are these cameras? And I was like, yeah, apparently there's some, some fucking Trump's cronies fucking got popped. And uh, they got a court day, right? And, and those two dudes are just sitting there all quiet, right? But I, I was certain that they was dumb, though, because I never knew what they looked like. Anyways, I saw them in the paper, like, the next day. I'm like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> Dude, if only I had known that it was, uh, that it was dumb. If only. Missed opportunities. And they were uh, charged with all kinds of campaign finance fraud. You know, they were, in, they were like some fixers in Ukraine. They are Soviet-born. Uh, they've been part of uh, America First Action, ASA, right? So anyways, I guess now Left Barnes is actually offering to testify against Trump during the impeachment, but he definitely got a taste of jail. Definitely didn't want to go back to jail, I guess. So this whole grand jury stuff, right, now that we knew the questions that they were asking, it kind of revealed a little bit about what their intention was. 
And, you know, there's some obvious things, like, you know, I was about to be released from prison, and this is a way to delay my release. You know, in, in Chelsea Manning's case, of course, it was kind of political as well. You know, we had, we had already served our time. Trump was also very upset that Chelsea Manning was pardoned, and so this is just another little strategy to, to put her back in jail. But as far as the questions go, there's a few uh, a few points. You know, so I didn't answer them in the grand jury and because uh, I owe them nothing. Right? But it, I, I do kind of want to address one or two of them here in this podcast, right? Well, one of them, you know, did Julian Assange ever encourage me to commit computer hacking? Well, I'm not going to confirm or deny who I was talking to allegedly, right? Um, I will say that, you know, when they took my computers and stuff like that, they did not have any chat log conversations that were recovered from my computer, right? So they don't know who I was talking to or what I was allegedly talking to, except for the conversations I was having with the FBI informant, of course, right? So they want to know what type of stuff we're talking about. And basically, they're trying to make Julian Assange look less like a publisher, less like uh, somebody who is uh, publishing leaked information, and more like a, a criminal co-conspirator. They wanted to make him look like he was calling shots, like he was ordering targets and stuff like that, right? They want to frame Julian Sanja up as more of an active collaborator. But the reality is, he never asked me to target anybody. There was somebody, uh, if the government is curious, as to who had been suggesting targets. Uh, and that was the FBI informant, of course, Dabu Hector Montagur. He had repeatedly asked me to target several companies. Uh, he is, in fact, the person who had introduced me to the target, Straffer, which I hacked. And so, and the FBI knows this because they have the chat log conversations. And this isn't just one of those things that people say, like, oh, well, the FBI knew the whole time, or the FBI was entrapping me and stuff like that. Like, no, we could actually pinpoint specifically the moment in chat conversations in which I became aware of Trapper. So why, it's really a bad faith question for, you know, the prosecutors to be asking me, why did I choose Trapper as a target? Like, you know why. Your FBI informant was the one by the target, right? But I'll, I'll say this, though. I was the one who chose my actions. Nobody else, nobody but myself chose to do the actions. Uh, I wasn't coaxed or manipulated to target anybody. Every one of the websites that I'd hacked, police, military, staff, or whatever, right, is because I saw them as deserving targets. As far as why Stratford, you know, uh, I find it hard to believe that the government seriously wants to know why. First off, I already explained on record my motivations during my sentencing hearing as far as why I was involved in anonymous and anti-sec all. Uh, because, we, you know, we targeted the security industry. We targeted police because they abuse and exploit the people to protect the rich and powerful. You know, we published their secret information, destroyed their servers, not just to bring attention to the specific grievances we had, but because they need to be got out of the way to make room for, you know, the new world we're trying to build. Um, and Sabu did more than this referral. He also asked me to target several international websites belonging to foreign governments. He was, he was very uh, jealous of the fact that I had access to several vulnerabilities, specifically websites that ran the Plesk control panel software, which is like millions of websites on the Internet. We had a, a zero-day vulnerability that targeted Plesk websites. And uh, he, he asked for it repeatedly when I was out there. He asked for the exploit. I was like, nope, you haven't even been hacking stuff recently, so kind of private, you know what I mean? Like, there's no reason, you know. But then he started finding websites that were based on Plesk, and he asked me to break into them. And then I did, because I was under the impression that he was hooking up. He knew some, like he would say, for example, I know some hackers in Brazil that are trying to gain access to their government's websites. Would you like to lend hand? I was like, okay. He gave me a couple websites, hacked them, and gave him the keys. Right. And in several cases, uh, I did, you know, work with several international hackers. Like we worked with some people in Greece to hack the Ministry of Justice. Gr. 
of course, we worked with Red Hat. There's a few other uh, websites, like, for example, I work with some uh, hackers in Mexico, target the Chamber of Mines. We released some emails that talked about how they were publicly denying climate change, but we're well aware of it, stuff like that, right? But anyways, Sabu, like, gave me a big list of targets, which I hacked. So as far as the government talking about whether Julian Assange was targeting any particular companies, they never did. Never did. And the questions that they're asking, like, like for example, Operation Payback and Anonymous, it was basically clear that they want to make it seem like Anonymous was, like, some hacker, like, vigilante group that was under Julian Assange's spell because, like, you know, we had done stuff to support him, you know what I mean? And uh, now that we know the questions uh, that the grand jury was seeking, uh, it really uh, substantiated our arguments of grand jury abuse. Uh, it really confirmed what we had already known. The questions uh, also confirmed that not only did the government already basically know the answers to these questions because they had evidence from the FBI informant in the first place, but that it basically confirmed that it was a, really the whole thing from the beginning was a bad faith effort to coerce my contempt. They had always knew that I was never going to cooperate in the first place when they had originally summoned me to court. This is just a plot to uh, extend my release date and, of course, just attempt to pile on more arguments against Julian Assange in his case, his espionage case. They had to know that, I mean, you, from the beginning, have always made it clear that you were not interested in cooperating with state agents. I mean, from the very beginning, you accepted a non-cooperating plea deal. You, at no stage of your original case, cooperated with, you know, the state. Right, that was the argument that my lawyers were making, is that there's nothing in my plea agreement that necessitated that I testify or debrief in any kind of way whatsoever. And so it is, uh, in discussing uh, the plea agreements with uh, my lawyers and the prosecutors in the origin of my case, it was always clear from the beginning that there was no interest in cooperation. I would not be required to testify. I would not be required to debrief or have any kind of conversation whatsoever with them. And so uh, and the government knew this one day. had summoned me to Alexandria for the grand jury. And another demonstration of how they this was a bad faith effort from the beginning is that they had actually secured an immunity order uh, from the court on the same day that they had contacted my lawyers to notify me that I was being summoned in the first place. Normally what happens in these grand jury proceedings is that they summon the person and then the person pleads the fifth and then the prosecutors go and secure an immunity order from the judge. But in this case, like as if they already known that, that from the beginning that I had no interest in cooperating, nor would I ever, even if it takes the whole 18 months. Ain't no stranger danger, ranking you another banger. My rolls fuck, I get explosive when I'm feeling anger. It's a corrosive dose when I'm cooking in the kitchen. Looking at me funny, get the stitches. Shit, I'm always itching. Ready to ride for friends. I try to make amends. Anytime I make mistakes, forgiveness if it's on the rent. Bending promises is not the way my time is spent. Your word is gold, it's in your soul, I think your diamond spent. I'm kind of spent from life. Yo, I'm still here, broken, but I'm rolling with it. I think that the other important thing to remember in this whole mess is that Sabu is still under a cooperating plea agreement. So, I mean, they had Sabu this entire time, and there's a good chance, although it is not 100% confirmed, there's a pretty damn good chance that they had already called Sabu to testify in front of the grand jury, and he, according to his plea agreement, cannot refuse to testify. Still red. Still snitching. So, he cannot refuse. 
any information that I mean you had probably really could have given them. So you are not really necessary. I mean, knowing that a you wouldn't testify, and b I mean they have the logs, they have the information. You knew you were going to end up being held in contempt. Bringing in front of the grand jury was nothing but a punitive measure. Yeah. Certainly, and since you mentioned the logs from Sabu and stuff like that, it's also important to note that while the government still has access to this information, I no longer have access to that the same discovery. I can't even go and look at my evidence while the government's got all the evidence in the world and all the time in the world to look at it. So I can barely even remember what was said back and forth. And this whole grand jury investigation is, is also so unnecessary because not only do they already have everything they need, you know, what with the chat conversations from Sabu and his own testimony, but, uh, you know, I have no great secrets. There's there's no, even if I were to, like, testify to the truth of, you know, my involvement, it, it wouldn't help their prosecution whatsoever. Uh, you know, there's there's no outstanding dead bodies. There's no stacks of cash buried anywhere. You know, they already know everything. Um, and so this whole thing is, is frivolous, it's pointless. You know, it's, it's really more symbolic than anything at this point. And with regards to Sabu still snitching, you know, uh, you know, I've been on the receiving end of rats and informants, you know, both of my cases and, you know, here in prison, they're everywhere. But um, it's, it's thinking about this grand jury, not only is it that I refuse the whole, you know, what they say, the obligation of a citizen uh, to testify for their government, you know, uh, it's not even about just about the kings and queens and countries and stuff like that, doing it for your country. But it's also about refusing to accept the logic of doing what you got to do for self-interest, you know, uh, logic of, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, rats justify it in their cases because they go, well, I just had to, you know, I had to get out of prison. I couldn't do that time, you know. Uh, and so thinking about this grand jury now, I, you know, I, one of my reasons to refuse to testify is, is not so much the specific grand jury case, what they're talking about, Assange and WikiLeaks, is, is that I wouldn't wish this upon anybody. I wouldn't want them to secure any indictment for anybody. When you testify, when you rat, you're basically putting somebody in prison. And, um, Furthermore, you know, as far as hackers, you know, unfortunately have a bad track record working for the FBI and the NSA and so forth. So me making a stand is is about setting an example for others. You know, you lose your hacker card. You you lost it. You lost it, Sabu. After the judge had found me in contempt, we requested that he had opened the courtroom up to the public, and he did, and, you know, a few close friends and supporters. It was really cool to be able to see them. And Grace, you were there. I was. I was there. It was my honor to be there. I wish I didn't have to be there, but basically what happened after once they opened up the courtroom, uh, everybody was allowed in. Quite disheartening to, you know, hear the judge go through every single argument and be like, no, we are not going to accept that argument. We're not going to accept this argument. We're not going to accept this argument. When, I mean, the arguments that were being made were absolutely valid. You know, there was the aside, uh, the white noise played that was, very, very weird. But common. But apparently very common. It's always kind of weird to be in a courtroom because for the people who are not the prisoner, this is all just very routine. And it's all sort of, oh, well, let's get them in, get them out. It's also very weird because there are like FBI creeps running around too. Oh, yeah. Um, that was a weird thing. I accidentally talked to FBI agents in the hall. I did not know that they were FBI agents, and I accidentally <laughs> talked to FBI agents in the hall. That was really dirty. weird. I found so out they dirty. were FBI agents, and I was like, God, I need to go home and shower now. I feel so dirty. Um, <laughs> but for the prosecution and the judges, this is all very like, you know, can we hurry this up? 
you know, I need to go to lunch, which was actually, we had gotten there a little early and we were sitting in on the case before it was some financial fraud case. And when they closed that, uh, they said that it was time for lunch. And so everybody's like, oh, okay, it's lunchtime, it's time to go. You know, they kind of wanted to just get through this case so, you know, they could go to lunch. And it was weird disconnect. Like, these people just want to go to lunch, and you're sitting there like, you are deciding the fate of a human being here. Yeah, sorry to waste your time. Right, right. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that caging human beings wastes your time and keeps you from lunch for 20 minutes. Like, so sorry about that. Actually, I'm not sorry at all. No, and, no, uh, absolutely not. Fuck their lunch, Sorry man. at all, but... Yeah. And uh, I want to, not to get too much into the whole Trump thing, but this is a simple fact of the matter, reflecting upon the fact that I'm, I'm being held in contempt on criminal grand jury and stuff like that, is that Trump and all his cronies are blatantly refusing to testify. They're bucking congressional subpoenas. They're bucking criminal grand jury subpoenas and so forth, right? And there's not a single one of them has been jailed. Oh, yeah. I, I mean... If you have enough money and power and influence, I mean, you can get away with anything. But again, that's the entire legal system. Right. And uh, it's also presidential privilege, immunity. You know, Trump's the argument that he's saying you don't have to respond to those things is that he thinks he can just go on the Fifth Avenue and shoot anyone and he can't even be investigated for those crimes. Like, yeah, he's just above the law, like literally. Yeah, it's, it's what the Republicans are saying currently. In the impeachment trials, you know, they're saying, well, he may have done the deed, but it's not impeachable and he's a lot of power thing. Well, it's also, it's very interesting. Uh, Somehow, I don't know how, I got on Trump's email list. Um, I've I've tried to unsubscribe, but I keep Take a shower immediately. And the way that they're framing this is that it's not just an attack on Trump. It's an attack on the American people. Really trying to whip people into a frenzy. This whole impeachment thing is they are really framing it they're not just attacking me. They're attacking you. And like, no, you did something bad. They're going after you, not, yeah, right. you know, you did something bad, not anyone else. Going back to talking about Julian Assange right now, he's, of course, still facing extradition to the U.S. He's being detained and held by the U.K. government. Right. I mean, I think one of the important aspects of his case is not just about him either, it's because it's the United States government thinks they could just go anywhere in the world and bring them here, prosecute them, imprison them, and eventually deport them. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, for all the rights and democracies that the United States claims, right? Uh, speaking about Julian Assange, Pompeo, he specifically said Assange has no First Amendment rights here. So basically they want to bring him here and deny him rights. Clearly he's already facing like 18 charges or something like that, and they want to yeah. like add some more related to my case. So there was some news in recently about this hearing scheduled to be happening in February. So Assange's extradition hearing has been set late February, and then a larger hearing in May. One of the um, issues at hand is to determine whether Assange's prosecution in the United States is uh, politically motivated, which I think is like uh, an argument that could cause their judge to refuse to extradite him if it's political in nature. And, of course, it is because, of course, the, the whole thing about it is they want to make him look more like a, a criminal a co-conspirator than a publisher of leaked information, which essentially is no different than what, you know, newspapers like the New York Times have done. And it's a public service to the people, of course. So I oppose the prosecution just on that sense. But my refusal to participate in the grand jury is not just a matter of grand juries in general, which I would never cooperate in the first place, but also I don't, I don't want to see Julian Assange or anybody brought here and imprisoned. 
you know, some of the earlier work that WikiLeaks had produced, especially pertaining to Chelsea Manning's leaks, was a major inspiration for me to get back involved in Anonymous and get back involved in hacktivism in the first place. However, I say I'm not going to let Assange off the hook either, for that matter, for some of the turns that he has made politically in the past couple of years, which I would like to go into detail for a little bit. Most obvious is his shift to the, uh, the right wing and his support from alt-right and his collaboration with the Trump administration in uh, his DNC leaks. I was really disturbed to see, you know, people like fucking Trump talking about, I love WikiLeaks, right? And to find out that Julian Assange had been, like, specifically talking with Donald Trump Jr. as far as, like, timing the DNC leaks so as to uh, ensure his electoral victory. Yeah, pretty much upset the world on WikiLeaks. I mean, it's, it's not just that him and uh, his other assistants have been known to spread a lot of anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories. You know, he's doing interviews on Sean Hannity and Fox News had routinely talked shit about feminism. There was one specific case uh, where there was a botched leak, I guess having to do with Phineas Fisher, badass hacker, by the way, where there had been information leaked to WikiLeaks uh, pertaining to Turkey, in which was specifically asked by uh, the leaker not to publish just yet, right, because they were still in their systems and so forth, right? Yet there was like a timely moment in which WikiLeaks and Julian Assange apparently found it like timely and, and try to capitalize in the short term publicity stuff by leaking what they had had. It was unfinished. It, it contained like the entire voter registration database in Turkey. And not to mention that it had caused Turkey to become aware of the breach as it was happening and close off any future exploitation potentials by the hackers. No, it's words are tight and brutal when I'm fighting. My little fist will hit your shit. I'm quicker than the speed of lightning. Left and right, so say goodnight whenever the ball comes out. Not a chin is sick where they still stand and I'ma choke them out. Broke them out, secure for haters with the vocal mouth. Thought you was funny, but got nothing left to joke about. I'm steady getting head and I mean with the lead machete. Severed from the neck, the cops will check and I'll be gone already. I bet he never thought that he would be beheaded. Bet he thought he had his head on straight up. Freddy's looking at his Freddy. Well, it's impossible to talk about Julian Assange and extradition hearings without talking about the sexual assault allegations and, and charges that he's facing from Sweden. And it's just kind of the story is told when people try to talk about that is, you know, he's a whistleblower and he's, you know, we have to defend journalists from politically motivated governments that are trying to prosecute them. But that, of course, is no reason at all to ignore or gloss over the harm that he may have done just because a person has a lot of power or social capital, no excuse. Right, just because he did a lot of important political work uh, is is not a reason why he should brush off any of the uh, charges and accusations against him because one could simultaneously have done important things but also have serious flaws and have done terrible things to people. I also think it's very important to say that even though the charges were dropped, uh, we still can choose to believe women. Um, and believe what they say just because somebody texts someone after an assault, just because someone uh, goes out on a date with someone after an assault, it doesn't mean they were not assaulted. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I was uncomfortable with how a lot of supporters are always just so quick to rush to, to blame the victims in a case and, and defend Assange no matter what, what he may have done. And it really gets to the heart of... Uh, you know, the role of uh, heterosexual white men in the movement, which was another thing about me about Julian Assange, is because he had gone out of his way to defend that individual who worked at Google, who, who published that open letter saying how Google is targeting white men 
and uh, this, this reverse racism and stuff like that, right? And uh, Julian Assange actually like went out of his way to praise him, like, and I think that's exactly the wrong message that we need to be sending. I think that you know those of us who who have privilege and who have computer skills need to be using our position to uh, promote an egalitarian worldview and not use it to just simply reinforce these systems of power that continue to exploit and oppress people. I think that really takes away from people being able to fully support him in his extradition hearing. Because, I mean, I do not want to see Julian Assange go to prison. I do not support his extradition to the United States. Um, But, I mean, like, if the revolution were to hit tomorrow, nobody says I have to open Julian Assange's cell door first. (laughs) (laughs) It just got to get open, like, eventually. I think that a large part, uh, a large, a large misunderstanding of prison abolition comes in that people say, oh, okay, well, you just want to see people roam free. No, it's not that we don't want to see accountability happen. Prison abolitionists want to see accountability happen. They just see it envisioned outside of prison walls. Exactly. There are accountability processes and restorative and transformative justice models that we could use to address issues like sexual violence amongst others that provide what the the survivors need um, without relying on the criminal court system. Honestly, how does prison help in a situation like that? It doesn't. It only dehumanizes. It only hurts. It does not address the core of the problem. It does not help the victim, I mean, and I mean, I'm saying this as a victim of sexual violence myself. I would not want to see any of my rapists go to prison. I would rather see them, you know, be held accountable in a different way that, you know, prison doesn't teach them why what they did was wrong. It just punishes. Exactly. And until Assange could come to terms with the way that he has harmed people, or the politics that he has perpetuated and his associations with the right wing and the alt-right and Trump. I don't have to support him personally or politically, but I, I do oppose his prosecution and extradition to the United States. I, I will continue to refuse to uh, cooperate with the grand jury. Even if I dislike him, that doesn't mean I'm going to support his prosecution. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can be a prison abolitionist and still think, you know, someone isn't a great person. You know, I, I think that Assange taking accountability for some of his past actions would really go a long way in convincing people that this is someone who should be supported. And I'm not just saying say sorry, because accountability is a lot more than saying, oh, well, I'm really sorry. Yeah. You know, accountability is a process. And he has a voice right now. If he wants to talk about avoiding unfair prosecution, you know, he has a voice to bring yes. into a new vision of society where we don't rely on prisons and cops to address our interpersonal harm. So, if you know, he has a voice, he could address the allegations in an intelligent way to bring source abolitionist perspectives, for example. Well, one of the things that I see the Assange case doing a lot of is anytime anything happens with his case, him and his supporters go, this is so unfair. This is being done to Assange specifically, to punish Assange specifically. And every single time, it's like, nah, this is really, honestly, par for the course. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the point. 
that's a good point because uh, I know there's like a, lo a lot of doctors worldwide and a UN investigator that said the, the conditions of confinement that he's gone through amounts to torture, right? And it is. It really is. And, and oh, it really absolutely. is obviously taking a physical, mental toll on him. But the the reality is where were all these people when this is going on on an everyday basis here in the United States and worldwide, really, but right. especially there the United are, States? There are absolutely people that do not have as big a voice or as big a base as Julian Assange. And, I mean, this is... This could absolutely be a watershed moment yeah, for yeah. prisoner rights. Right. He himself is the martyr. He goes through the system, you know, and everyone else is trapped in it. Right. And, I mean, this could absolutely be shining a spotlight on the injustices that prisoners face every single day. You know, not just this is what Julian Assange is facing. This is what prisoners face every single day. Every single day, prisoners are denied fresh air. Prisoners are denied sunlight. Prisoners are denied access to counsel. Prisoners have their cases delayed. Prisoners cannot have visitors. You know, everything, every single thing that Assange's team has decried as poor treatment for him and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that it's right for him because it is absolutely not. But every single thing that has been decried as so horrible and poor treatment for him, honestly, it's the norm. Yeah. It is not yeah. in any way out of the norm. <laughs> like, That's I, what we I say, free him all. I've been so Yeah, yeah. Six months without you, doubt you really care to hear it. But I'm better off alone. You were a dark cloud above my spirit. I'm looking better, feeling better. I took that better off. Was acting like a dick. I crashed my car and that's what set it off. Looked in your eyes and said it's time to go. Looked at me back, let out an evil laugh. Console me, then you told me no. Said, how you gonna fuck up playing stage without me? I love when people doubt me. That's the frame that's about to help me grow. Cause that's the vengeance against this codependency. To reemerge, evolve, and solve these self-destructive tendencies. Find myself behind the mask under the dark debris i started to see me for me and shed this false identity if you're a friend of me please don't ever tempt me at worst you'll be an enemy at best think you resent me but i won't lie cause even though i know i'm well loneliness and boredom wanna try to drag me back to hell yeah all right for the next section of our podcast we're going to be uh, doing letters answering questions from our listeners and we're going to start off with an easy one. This letter is from um, someone from Asheville, North Carolina, who wrote and asked if I feel okay when I open my eyes in the morning. It's a good question. And, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not okay with this bogus case they're putting on me right before I was supposed to be released. I'm also very worried about the future with all that's happening with Trump and the rise of nationalism, war, climate change. But, um, yeah, I'd say overall, yeah, I'm actually doing fine. You know, I don't get stressed out or bummed easily. You know, I've, I've already been through the worst. There's not much more they could do that they haven't done already. So what's a few more months? You know, I, I know how to do time. Even, you know, even with the flashing lights and the strobe light in my cell all night, right, I still find ways to make the best out of bad situations. You know, I still have me, and that's enough. You know, my day-to-day -day life, it really ends with that. You know, I, I work every day in the kitchen. You know, the job sucks, like, like all jobs, right? But at least I, I be eating good. You know, I, I read newspapers every day. I work out every day. 
I read your letters. You know, I appreciate everybody who writes me. They always inspire me to keep me going on. If I'm ever bored, you know, I play chess, my cards every day. There's always, you know, something to do. I catch, you know, I might catch a movie on TV. And uh, yeah, I've basically been doing this forever, right? I mean, I've been doing this forever. It, it, it really does suck. I'm sick of this. I'm really sick of it. You know, I, I always wonder, what is the purpose of my continued incarceration? Like, why? But what's important is doing the right thing here. You know, it doesn't matter how long it takes. Even if it may seem pointless, you know, we've got to try. We've got to keep going. You know, sometimes it's hard to see the full implications of our decisions. But, you know, every choice we make, it sends a message to the universe. So we've got to stay positive. We've got to stay engaged. And we've got to stay active. That's what I got. That's very nice, Jerry. Um, well, shit, I just wrote a little poem. Cool. So... In response to your letter from North Carolina, I wrote this uh, this poem, and um, and it goes a little like this. When I get up and I open my eyes, I feel rage within and I hear commotion outside. I try to decide, should I get up or stay inside, the comforting realms of dreams and three cats with no responsibility. I remember my time at the penitentiary, of all of us struggling to maintain our humanity. There's always those times when you ask yourself, why try? But I'm reminded by those on my side that if this ship sinks, we'll all fry. So I get up and I make my moves. We got to survive, but we also got to thrive. So we resist to exist, destroy to construct a more interesting, more just world for all of us. That's fucking badass, dude. That's fucking couldn't be more appropriate. Nice. So yeah, if anyone uh, has any letters or questions they want to send, please feel free to contact us. You know, my mailing information is on the website, but you could also send a direct message to the Jeremy at Twitter. You know, both Jason and Grace here will respond to you. That's right. So you could also uh, check us out our website at twintrouble.home.blog. Right now it's available on SoundCloud. We're getting it put on Apple Music too as well. And, um, and that's our show. Uh, you've been listening to our friend Novator in between the sections of the show today. So please check his music out. There's a link posted in the description. You know, I guess this is it. This is Jason from Chicago. Catch you next time. And this is Jeremy from Prison Nation. And we are Quinn Trouble. Quinn Trouble. Nighting the wire, wearing the lion's fight. I got my knife in the pocket, rocket, nowhere in sight. I got my life with the fist hitting some idiots, hideous intense, intense menace, civilians. Under brilliance, lagging the minor side of violence. But for survival, I'm lagging, nagging the rise of tyrants. Tiger irons, I'm under fire from enemies. Anything goes, no holds barred until the sound of sirens. Metal batons and brass knuckles get buckled with scuffle for next to nothing. No pity within a violent city. You wanna hit me, come get me, you better bring a bat. Attack you back, I'm a rapper, Jack, and no, that's a fact. And now you bleed from receiving the kick. Shit, I'll leave you leaking, I'm pleading the fifth. This ain't really nothing, you know I can keep it coming. I'm rapper, jabbing you, stabbing you, motherfucker, stop running, what? Those scratches.
Savage and savagely biting We fighting for honor Fighting in silent violence upon them We want them It's such a honor To light them up Marijuana piranhas Inside a city Insidious wicked honors I caught him in the neck For heavy disrespect Expect a check for life Because a pipe was used To get you wrecked Direct deposit with the blade My agents love the chaos Possibly sadistic With some monsters With the fist of death I got a crystal rap For smashing cats with glasses Fascists better run We bought the gun They better hit the deck I'm like a technician No other competition Compromise for nothing Scratch your name off For my composition Fuck a petition Just listen We'll burn them at the stake